Today's a special day. Uh, we have a special guest with us here today. Uh, Dan leads the Hub Church, uh, who are great, great, great friends of ours. And we love Dan. Like, Dan's an amazing, amazing man. And so we're so privileged to have him with us this morning. So why don't we give a massive Zio welcome to Dan Drew this morning. Come on, Dan. Hello. Mate, it's so good to have you with us. It's good, isn't it? It's good, yeah. Like what you've done with the place? <laughs> it's nice. It's good. All right, we're going we're gonna to read a passage together. Why don't you turn with me, if you can, to Luke. And this is, uh, this is Luke chapter 10. Okay, and uh, from verse 28 onwards. All right, Luke 10, 28. And uh, it says this. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two tenari and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for, you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Let's give him a round of applause. What a legend. We are all, in case you hadn't noticed, human. We are all human. So turn to the person next to you and say, we are all human. We are all human. We are all refugees. And we have to do something. And that's what I'm going to unpack today. We are all human. We are all refugees. But before I do that, let me start by saying what a huge privilege it is to be in this place speaking to this wonderful church. We really, really love Zio. We love your passion. I love the new name. It's much easier than the other one. I can actually spell it. It's just really great. <laughs> Normally when I come and speak, I take a few moments to take the mic out of Tony Summerfield. Um, but we haven't got long enough for that today. <laughs> Here he goes. Yeah. No, actually, I'm not going to do that today. I just want to say thank you to your amazing church because when I think about the journey of the hub and when I think about my personal life where I am today, I'm just so grateful to your church. We wouldn't have been able to plant the hub without you. And when I think about the people that planted the hub, you guys played a huge part in that. So I wanted to thank you. And why don't you give yourselves a round of applause for that? You might have heard that I'm moving to Australia soon to suffer for Jesus. 
And um, it's basically Tony's fault, because um, Tony and Matt kind of mentor me. Well, they don't kind of mentor me, they do mentor me. And, and Tony was one of the first people that like, said, oh, I was praying for you this morning, and I feel like God's saying you need to think about what's next. So Tony, it's your fault. If it all goes wrong, it's your fault, and I'll be coming back and looking for a job. Next week. So when we think about changing the world, and I know you've been thinking about that as a church, I think about your church, actually, because over a sustained amount of time, I mean, before I was even born, Tony, this church has been changing Hitchin and changing the world. And you guys have done so much. And when we want to encourage ourselves to look forward, it's really important to look back and remember all that you've done. And you're in a three-week series, is that right? And is this three of three, Paul? Should have checked that before I started. And so week one, Phil talked about poverty. Week two, Matt did a great talk, not that Phil's wasn't great, on the persecuted church. And today I want to talk about refugees. Refugees. A difficult subject, a divisive subject. And you've rooted this in, in Matthew 25 which most theologians and all those sort of clever people think is about the end times, about the end of the world. But I want to focus on these wonderful words in Matthew. It says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom is prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. We are all human. We are all refugees. And when you think about changing the world, if you want to be a person that changes the world, I'm actually inspired by Steve Jobs. I'm a bit of an Apple fan. Any Apple fans? Any non-Apple fans? If you could please leave, that would be great. That's a joke. Steve Jobs said, in reference to Einstein, Maria Callas, Dr. Martin Luther King, those who believe they are crazy enough to change the world actually do. Those who are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world actually do. And if you hear one thing from what I say today, It is, if we want to change lives, if we want to glimpse that new kingdom that Paul was talking about, if we want to see people's lives in seemingly impossible circumstances, just do something. Just do it. Just do something. Turn to the person next to you and say, just do it. We can easily get caught up in our heads. We can get caught up in cynicism and we can overthink stuff. When we think about these really big topics that you've been exploring. But I believe if we want to make a difference, if we check our hearts and we chat to our friends and we have the right motives, if we just get on with it and do something, then we can make a difference. Because I believe God wants to use you and he wants to use me, in particular this church, to change the world. And that's what me and my wife did and, and, and at the hub. We, we don't know what difference we've made to refugees, but we just went for it. We didn't know what we were doing. I'm not experienced in this stuff. Lots of people here are, but we just went for it and we did something. And before I tell you my story, let me just name that elephant in the room because work with refugees is hugely, hugely divisive. There's probably people in the room that don't agree with what I do or some of the work that we've done that I'll explain in a few moments. 
When we started actively um, going to visit refugees and working with refugees at the hub, people actually left our church. People walked out at that moment. Bit awkward. We carried on anyway. I remember being invited by Azinski's, which is a nightclub in town that Tony goes to on a Saturday night. Uh, <laughs> that was a nice thing. I was implying you were still young. <laughs> we were invited by Azinski's to collect money for refugees because they don't charge to get into the nightclub. So we stood outside, you know, when people were queuing to get in, and we were standing there with our little buckets all smiling like Christians do. And, um, and it was really interesting, the response, because you know what happened? Half of the people patted us on the back. They said, you're amazing. This is wonderful work. They literally opened up their wallets and took all the cash that they had and put it into the bucket. And yet the other half hated what we were doing. We had stand-up rows with people. People would say things like, don't we have enough problems in our own country to be worrying about people abroad? Don't we have enough problems in our own country? The other thing they would say is, um, most of them, which is always an unhelpful way to start a sentence, most of them aren't even refugees in Calais. Most of them aren't even proper refugees. And in some ways, they're right. But I want to say today, we are all human We are all refugees. We have to do something. We have to do something. The UN's refugee agency, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, what a great job title that would be, reports that the number of displaced people is at its highest ever, surpassing even the numbers we saw in World War II. The total at the end of 2015 reached 65 and a half million or one out of every 113 people on this earth. Just think about that for a minute. This number represented a six million increase on the year before. This means that around 1% of the earth's population is either an asylum seeker, internally displaced, or a refugee. And they're old stats, like it's gone up since, but sometimes it's hard to record these numbers as you'll understand but that's one percent of the whole world displaced in some way we are all human we are all refugees we have to do something so what do we do what do we do at the hub what did what did me and alex do well my journey began in 2015 when pictures like this one of this boat um, started appearing in newspapers all around the world and online People selling everything they had to pay somewhere in the region of five to ten thousand pounds to put their family in a boat to go on an unknown journey to an unknown location. Desperate, cold, lonely, not even knowing whether they would make it. Thousands of people died, many of these boats sunk, and people were washed up on the shore. And perhaps this image of all the images captured the imagination of. Do you want to just click forward? Thanks, mate. Perhaps you remember this image. This image captured the imaginations of the world. It's an image of a a young lad washed up on a beach in Turkey. Just reflect on that for a few moments. And so my wife and I were away on holiday and we saw some of these images coming forward. And I grew up in Kent in the southeast. Anyone from Kent? 
lovely. There's a few of us. We're wonderful people from the Garden of England. And, um, and of course, when you live in Kent, one of the things you do for fun as, you, as you're growing up is you go to France to buy like croissant and brie and cheap wine. So we used to go on these booze cruises regularly to Calais. And as I looked at photos in the press, if you just click forward, um, we were seeing that this place we recognised, Calais, where I'd been so many times as a young person, was full of tents that thousands of people had moved in. Thousands of people had managed to cross over that river, uh, those, um, those seas that you saw earlier, and then make the treacherous journey across Europe, often through the night in darkness, um, smuggling, smuggled over borders, and they arrive in Calais because they want to come and live in the UK. Now, it's not for me to decide where they get to live, but this is a picture we took of the jungle in Calais very early on. So what do we do? Well, we, we saw these pictures and we thought we've got to do something. So we found a few people we know and um, chatted to a few people, but no one really seemed to know what was going on. So we did something a bit stupid. We basically got my mate's um, saloon car, went to the supermarket, got all the spare clothes we had, filled, filled the car with clothes, filled it up with tins of like, beans and all that sort of stuff, drove down to Dover and went to the refugee camp. Now, I don't necessarily recommend um, doing it like this, because on arrival, when we arrived at the jungle refugee camp in Calais, this is only hours from where we are now. This isn't far away. It was absolute chaos. There were people coming in from all over Europe, opening the backs of their vans, and refugees fighting for different resources, fighting over bits of wood and tools to build the camp. It was utter chaos. And so we decided not to open up my friend's saloon car, but instead grabbed a couple of bags and went straight to the church. And I think you can see it pictured here. And that's the church in the bottom left-hand corner. And this, other than Zio, is the best church that I've ever been to in my life. And you can see it's not really made of much, just wood and plastic. And we went along to the church and met a man called Solomon. And much to our surprise, he was really pleased to see us. Because we thought we'd be getting in the way. We thought that we were being unhelpful, but we, we had to do something. And we had a conversation with him and, and gave him the tins and stuff we had so that he could distribute um, the tins to the people in need. And then we asked him the question, which I don't regret, but I didn't know where this journey would take us. I said, how can we serve you? What can we do to serve you? How can we help? We'd love to help in any way. We don't know what we're doing, but we'd love to help. Well, he looked down at the floor, and you can kind of see it there in the top left-hand corner. And he said, we have lots of different rugs on the floor. And they had like a Mickey Mouse rug, um, just rugs that they picked up, bits of clothes laid down. And of course, people would come in and sit on the floor, and they'd get wet. He said, I'd love a carpet for this church. And I said straight away, oh yeah, we can do that, that's fine. I didn't really know what was involved in like, getting a carpet. And probably this church is about half the size of this room. So it turns out that's quite a big bit of carpet. Like That's not your average um, living room job. So I had to do a bit of like Dan Drew kind of wheeler dealing to make this happen. It's like we, there's, probably, there's about 10 people in our church, and then there's me and my two mates have turned up in Cali. We didn't know what we were doing. So I said, yeah, we'll get you a carpet. So I had to do it. Um, so, so we planned this trip in two weeks to take pretty much our whole church to, to the church there to pray, and, um, and we promised we'd come back with a carpet. So I found out my mate who works for AZ Autos, um, great garage, and uh, I said, mate, I've got to get this carpet. Like, do you know what we're going to do? I said, I can, you know, if you can help me, I could probably get you in a newspaper. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do. <laughs> he's like, yeah, right. He didn't do it. He's a nice guy. But he said, look, I'll, I'll pay for the carpet. I know the guy at Charles Wilson's carpet, so I'll phone him up, see if he can do us a deal. You know, Charles Wilson's your kind of classy carpets. We wanted to get him a good one. So he phoned him up, 
And he basically ran back and said, Dan, I can provide the carpet. It's all fine. Turns out the carpet is absolutely huge. It's these three massive rolls. And then we have to find a way of getting this carpet from Hermitage Road to the jungle refugee camp in Calais. I don't know how you do that. So um, anyway, they got on the front page of the paper, which they were really pleased about. And I had to ring up the paper and said, look, I've got a really good story for you, but um, you need to guarantee it's going to be in the paper, otherwise you can't have the story, which, again, is a terrible thing to do. I don't recommend you do that. But, but it worked, and they got their carpet. So um, here we are here. Like, we've arrived in Calais, and basically I had to get this van, but not an ordinary van, like you clever Zio people that put all this together would know better than me that you need quite a big van to take that much carpet. So... Anyway, we got there in the end, and um, there we are, seven or eight of us from the hub, sitting on this carpet, smiling. And they were so grateful when we arrived. And I remember my mate Dave, because I can't drive one of those things, reversing into this refugee camp with this massive long wheelbase van as we delivered the carpet. But they were so grateful. And for us, that was the start of a long journey. And I think we've done about 25 to 30 trips since to Calais and now Dunkirk, where we're going on Friday with a small team from the hub. We take food, we take whatever they need, and just ask them that simple question, how can we serve you? I wonder who you could ask that question to. And our purpose on our work in Calais is twofold. Number one, to serve and help out with the refugees, to meet real people, normal people, just like us. But number two is to kind of become advocates for refugees and share their story, a little bit like today. We've done that on social media and in other places. And one of the amazing things that happened was there's this couple that used to come to our church and they left, they, they moved away. It wasn't awkward or anything like that, but they left and moved on. And, and they came on one of our trips and then they ended up starting up their own refugee charity, which is so much better than the work we do. And so it's amazing when you start doing this stuff, you don't know what's going to happen. The other thing we do is always take non-Christians of us on the trips nine out of ten times. One of the people we took was someone called Helen who described herself as a backsliding atheist. I don't know if you've got any of them here today. Um, welcome. Uh, but she was a backsliding atheist, and she was doing Alpha for some reason. And we invited her on a trip to Calais. And you know what she said? She said, it all slotted into place for me. It all made sense when I realized that your faith actually made a difference to your life. When I saw the way that you all spoke to refugees, that you actually cared about them, that was what made a difference for me. She's now a Christian, and she works for the Hub, so that worked out quite well for us. On our last trip two months ago, uh, I won't use his name, but he doesn't mind me sharing a story, um, we took someone along, and I was, I was driving my car, which is a Skoda Roomster, which is a wonderful car, don't judge me for it, it looks like the Pope Mobile, and um, the great thing about the Roomster is you can take the seats out the back and turn it into a van, so we filled up my car, a bit like a van, went down to Dunkirk this time, and to be honest, I wasn't really feeling it that day, I was a bit tired. I was losing my voice, which is a bit of a hazard in this job. And um, I'd lined up a really good playlist. I knew that I was going to have one passenger with me, um, but I lined up a really good playlist, and I wanted to listen to the Peter Crouch podcast, which is really good. And so um, I didn't want to talk to the passenger. I just wanted to go on the journey. But we took this guy along who's an atheist. He describes himself as an atheist. He voted to leave the EU, which is fine, um, and he doesn't agree with work with refugees. So I'm sitting in a car with someone who's an atheist who doesn't agree with work with refugees, who voted to leave the EU, going to France, to Calais, to, to Dunkirk, to serve refugees. How funny is that? And the whole way, all he wanted to do was talk about God. <laughs> Which was great. And we had a good chat. 
And I said, why do you come? And he said, well, well, you seem to be doing something good, but also, if I've got an opinion, then I need to challenge that opinion. I need to work out whether I'm right or not. What a mature response for someone that I absolutely and fundamentally don't agree with. We are all human. We are all refugees. We have to, have to, have to do something. Just do it. And when we think about this idea of humanity, Matt asked me to give just a really brief theology of why and how we might work with refugees. And I think that comes in kind of two strands, and you've probably guessed what they are. (laughs) Humanity and that we're all refugees. Firstly, humanity. In creation, in, in, in in the Bible, however you think it went down, however you think we came about, we see that God is created Creative. <laughs> Very important distinction. God is creative. And we are created in the image of God. This is sometimes known as a theological concept called the Imago Dei, which in its simplest form means we are created in the image of God. One creator, the pinnacle of creation, humanity, whether you believe it or not, when you look in the mirror sometimes, God, the creator, creates out of joy and he creates us. Created in order to create And when we think about the other, when we think about refugees, we have to remember that these people are also created in God's image. At a very fundamental level, we are all humans. Whatever country we were born in, I didn't choose to be born in England, I don't know about you. I think if I was choosing, I'd have chosen Brazil or somewhere like that so that we could win the World Cup. But I didn't. We are all equal. And God, in Jesus chooses to become a human like us, to come into the world. And so that humanity is something that God imparts, but also shares with us. We are all humans, whether we like it or not. More on Jesus in a few moments. But Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, says these wonderful words. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Amen. You are all one in Christ. And Paul is speaking to a community that are obsessed with division. Division around Jewish sacrificial rites, the way people eat together, and circumcision. And he argues that we are all one in Christ. And then at the end of the Bible, we arrive at this picture of heaven, where as Paul said, interestingly earlier, I think God's trying to say something to us, that we are all equal. As Paul said, every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning. In heaven, we don't have any money. We're all equal. We don't live in England in heaven. Now, we like to think that England might win the World Cup in heaven or something like that. We're all equal when we arrive. We are all human. And so that's the first strand. The second strand is this, that we are all refugees. I realize that's a big statement to make, but I believe that we are all refugees. And so a brief overview of the Bible. I can't do it the way Matt Sumfield does it. That thing is amazing. The Bible is a story all about refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. Adam and Eve, the very first humans, leave their home after the fall. God's people in the Old Testament are in many ways defined as refugees, as the stories of Abraham, exile, and the Exodus tell us. Moreover, whether we like it or not, Jesus himself was a refugee 
as we read in Matthew's gospel, as he flees from King Herod to Egypt, God himself in Jesus becomes a refugee. And finally, in Revelation, back to the garden, we read that it's a garden city, not like Letchworth, I'm afraid. We find our true citizenship in heaven. The new heaven, the new earth. This is our new home, not the one we live in now. We are all refugees, whether we like it or not. And without fail, every time I meet someone who might be defined as a refugee, I always learn a lot more. I always find out a lot more about myself. I remember uh, in the early days of visiting the jungle in Calais, uh, it was kind of divided into different sections, and we used to go and hang out with uh, the Sudanese Muslims. They were wonderful people. They used to get a drum out, and we'd be like dancing and all of that stuff. I can't dance, as you would have seen at the start, but it was still great fun. And I remember they would always offer us hospitality, despite having nothing in the world. I remember one time this guy got out this like um, Mr. Kipling um, lemon sponge that someone had obviously donated, and they cut it for us at huge cost to them. They also made me this coffee, which was the most sugary, strongest coffee I've ever tasted in my life. And what they'd done was taken the filter coffee, not filtered it, and just kind of mixed it into the cup. But you know what? It was probably the best coffee I'd ever tasted because it was made with love, because it was made at a cost for me. They're often Arabic-speaking Muslims, and what we do is sit in their um, like kind of makeshift homes and I speak like three words of Arabic and, and they didn't speak much English so we'd get um, these picture books and kind of smile at each other and go through these books. And when I look back over the last few years, they're probably the times in my life where I felt most human, where I felt most alive and yet we weren't even communicating. We are all human. We are all refugees. You just have to do something. Just do something. And as we heard at the start, um, just as... I kind of come into land on the last bit. I'm going to focus on the parable of the Good Samaritan and talk about that for a few moments, and then I'm going to tell you about a trip I took to Lebanon, to the Bacar Valley. So, the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke's Gospel. We know that Luke was a doctor. And it's interesting, knowing that, he also wrote Acts, so Luke and Acts kind of come together, they're one book, but they used to basically have these really long scrolls, and they couldn't get the whole book on one scroll, so that's why these books, particularly in the Old Testament, are often divided up. So Luke and Acts is written by the same person, and Luke was probably a doctor. And so when we read his account, we see extra detail, a bit like Dr. Kate, you've got a doctor here at Zio. And he writes this account, most people think to Gentiles people that didn't have any religious history, unchurched, we might call them today, or non-Christians. And he's trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He's trying to give an account of the life and times of Jesus. And so he, he tells this story. And it all starts when someone asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And the person that asks the question, trying to be clever, and we all know people like that, says, but who is my neighbor? He's trying to catch Jesus out, and we know that's not always a good way to go. And Jesus' response is really interesting. The same way he responds to everything else in the Bible, he responds with a story. 
And he begins to tell this story about a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. That road, um, you can go there today, is about 18 miles long. And even though this is a parable, a story to tell us an even greater truth, we know that as Jesus told this parable, people would have been able to picture in their minds that road. This was a road that was quite familiar to them. I think that's um, a good example of it in the background of that slide. So this road was about 18 miles long, and um, Jericho was 3,500 feet lower than Jerusalem. And so um, you, you would see people coming, and what would happen is the robbers would see people coming in the distance. They'd hide behind rocks and get ready to mug them. And so as Jesus told this story, this is something that was happening in everyday life. People were robbed and mugged. And so the man's walking along the road, and all of a sudden he's mugged and robbed and beaten up and left for dead without a friend in the world, all of his money gone, everything stripped away, left for dead. All of a sudden, a priest comes along. Now, in case you didn't know, I'll try and keep it quiet. I am a priest. Did anyone know that? I'm one of them priests, yeah. So uh, a priest, someone like me, is supposed to be good people. We did lots of training to become priests, to say the magic words over communion and all of that stuff. And um, the priest comes along, and instead of going to help the man, he crosses over the other side and walks past him and just leaves him for dead. Outrageous, right? You wouldn't expect a lovely priest like me to do that. I'd like to think I wouldn't, but I'm sure I do every day. The problem with that one is that the priest is on his way, so we know he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's kind of his weekend off. And if he touches the man that's unclean, he has to go back to the temple and re-cleanse himself. This is a huge problem. He wants to get, start his weekend. He wants to go and watch the football or whatever he does. And so he leaves the man for dead on the side of the road. Then comes the Levite. Now, if you were hearing this story that Jesus told, when they start talking about the Levite, who were kind of like Jewish temple assistants, people that helped out in the temple, you'd expect that he was going to be the one that would save the day. Because the Jews always save the day in these stories. But Jesus changes that narrative and confuses people. And like the priest, the Levite crosses over the other side of the road, leaves the man for dead and carries on walking. And then there's this wonderful phrase, which you might be able to see up on the screen in the, in the gospel there. And I think Luke's very deliberate with this. After he's told those two stories, he says... But the Samaritan, but the Samaritan, this would have surprised people. It would have been outrageous. It's a little bit like a Spurs fan, which I am helping out an Arsenal fan on the side of the road. You just wouldn't do it. (laughs) But the Samaritan, the person that didn't get on with the man that had been beaten up, knelt down, got in the dirt, in the mud, and helped him home. Took him to a hotel and made him well. Jesus, in the most profound bit of this story, asked the man the question, who was the neighbour to the man broken in the mud? Who was the neighbour to him? It was the Samaritan, of course. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. One of my favourite New Testament theologians, a man named Chris Tilling, says, the question, the parable of the Good Samaritan asks us, is not our refugees, our neighbours, but will we be their neighbours? Will we be their neighbours? We are all human. 
We are all refugees. Just do it. Just do something, please. So finally, Lebanon. We went on a trip to Lebanon a couple of years ago because we wanted to support a charity there to make sure that we were supporting a charity that worked on the ground with refugees on the border with Syria in the most desperate place. So we went out to check out that they were legit, which is always a good thing to do when you're sending people money. Uh, And we were really keen to kind of stay out the way and just see what the project were doing. On our first day, um, we arrived in really late, and the next morning someone picked us up and took us straight to the Bekaa Valley. The Bekaa Valley is in between, um, is, is in Lebanon, but on the border with Syria, and it's home to thousands and thousands of refugees. This isn't a new problem. There's been people living there for years. And one of the team told me in the car that, um, and, and just contrast this with the number of refugees that live in this country that, that we accept into our country, um, one of the team told me that two million Syrian refugees had crossed the border into Lebanon. And now one in two people in Lebanon were Syrian refugees. Now we don't know if those stats are completely accurate, but imagine if our population doubled in the UK. Imagine what that would do to our infrastructure and to our resources. And so this is a very complex situation. And yet these wonderful people are going in every day to the Bakar Valley, some of them living there and working with refugees. So we went to a school, we went to this amazing Christian project, and um, there was a football project as well. And the international language, as you know, is football. I don't speak any Arabic, but I managed to talk to these guys about football, basically saying Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, and they knew who that was. And so again, we began to build that relationship, and I tried to play football with them, but I was rubbish, and they were great. And it struck me that for these children that you see here, this is all they have, this bit of concrete in this valley, in this place of great brokenness. Muslim parents would send their children to the Christian school and to the Christian football project because what started to happen was ISIS had started recruiting soldiers and young people from the Muslim projects. Later that day, we visited people's homes, um, which were slightly more developed tents than we saw in, um, in the jungle in Calais. And this is the inside of someone's home, a very simple yet functional space. And again, as we were doing that, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt like I was interrupting their day. I felt like I was getting in the way. And yet they were so grateful. I remember speaking to one woman who'd shared some quite harrowing stories, which I won't share today. But she said to us at the end, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for being interested in us. Thank you so much for coming all the way from England to be interested in us. Amazing. Surprising. We try to stay out of the way. As our time closed, uh, we went into this home, which is the home of one of the boys that we'd seen and hung out with earlier that day. And I think there's a, uh, another picture of them both here. It's the lad on the left. And again, I won't say his name. And the guy on the right uh, runs the football project. And as I looked around the room, it was very simply decorated. As you can see, there's kind of drapes everywhere. And up on the wall in the corner was this little medal that you can see around his neck. And I pointed out the medal and I said, what's that medal all about? Where, Where did you get that from? He walked over slowly to the medal and carefully took it down, holding it like it was the most precious thing in the world. This is one of those plastic medals that we just buy from Poundland and throw away. And yet, it meant everything to this young man. And he explained that at the football project, which is run by that guy, him and his friends had won a football tournament 
and he'd won that medal. The only thing on the wall in his house. The only real possession that he has in the whole world. That wonderful medal was everything to him. It represented humanity. It represented a home, a place where he can be himself and express himself. We are all humans. We are all refugees. We have to do something. If you want to defeat giants, if you want to see movement, if you want to change the world, you have to do something. You're going to make mistakes like we've done a number of times, but please, please, please do something. I'm going to pray in a few moments, but as I do that, I want to invite you to just reflect for, on a, for a few moments what this might mean for you. And maybe you don't know what that thing is that you need to do, but I encourage you to pray and, and talk to your friends about that. Let's pray. <coughs> Loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your very nature, in your very essence, you are relational. And we thank you so much for the way in which through all these relationships that we have with different people around the world, we come closer together. We thank you that in your relationship as Trinity, that you make space for each person to flourish. And I pray that that would be the mantra of our lives, that we would create a space for people to flourish in this world. And we pray now for the refugee crisis. And I personally and we corporately say sorry for the times where we've ignored it or not really thought about it. And we pray for genuine change in our world. That we would glimpse that new kingdom. That we would find our homes in you. And so we pray now, come Holy Spirit. Would you fall on each person here? And would you be speaking to them about what it is you might be calling them to? Is it to pray? Is it to collect stuff? Is it to donate? Or is it to just get in the car and go? Lead us, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Isn't that inspiring? Don't we want to th- why don't we thank Dan together for what he's shared with us this morning? This is so good. And let's, let's stand together. Those of us just need to let that word settle in our hearts. Let's do that. Um, but Dan mentioned at the start he's off to Australia um, with Alex's wife and family. So let's let's pray, shall we? Let's pray for Dan as he's in this next stage. Like we we love Dan. He goes with our um, with our prayers and our love. But let's let's in this moment just cover him and his family and his time ahead as he travels himself. Like. Um, that God would open up something amazing ahead of him. All right, so if you want to pray with me on that, feel free to like to reach out our hands and stretch out. Let's just uh, let's ask God to fill him with his spirit. Let's pray blessing over him. Let's pray out together now, shall we? Let's pray in our normal voices. Come on. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you have ahead of Dan and Alex. Thank you, Annie, you've used them already. 
Thank you for the life and the light that they've shone around, the, around uh, our area here, around Calais, around Dunkirk, and all the places they've been. Thank you, God, that they leave an incredible legacy as they move on. But thank you even more, Lord, that they carry your light with them. Yeah. And that where they go, you go too. And God, we look forward to amazing stories of your blessing, your, um, your gifting, even more fanned into flame in Danax's life. God, amazing stories of miracles and things that happen when you get involved. And God, we just, we just pray good things ahead for them. We pray safety. We pray inspiration. We pray um, togetherness. We pray love. We pray all your goodness into their lives together. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.